morning, Calvary. My name is Thomas, if we've never met, and it's a joy to be on staff here at Calvary and be able to open up the scriptures. We've been in this historical document called Luke, looking at all these eyewitness accounts that are recorded in history of everything that Jesus said he did in his death, in his resurrection. And in the last few weeks, we've just been in that last seven days of Jesus' life. Looking at as he journeys towards Jerusalem, and then he's in Jerusalem for that last week and all that he's going to accomplish on the cross. And we see that the religious leaders of the day have increased their hostility towards him, and their aggression towards Jesus becomes very direct. They're looking for ways to destroy him. And you have to understand that the the leadership of Israel is kind of broken up into several different parties. There are the Pharisees, and they get the most kind of press in the, in the scriptures. They're the ones that Jesus has the most confrontation with. They're the ones that are asking most of the questions. They believe in the entirety of the Old Testament as well as the oral traditions or the commentary on the Old Testament. And then you have the scribes, which are like the legal experts about what the law has said. They're the ones that you would ask questions to about the actual textual evidence or the textual teachings of everything. Then there's another group called the Sadducees, and they're going to be the ones of our attention today. And the Sadducees are kind of the chief priests of the day. They hold the political power and persuasion. They're the coziest with Roman governments and friends of Rome because they don't want to lose any political power. And we've seen that the Pharisees have addressed Jesus with questions. We've seen the scribes attack Jesus with some questions. And today is is the Sadducees' turn. And we've seen that the questions have ranged from authority, who has power, to politics. Do you have to behave in this world and render to Caesar taxes? And today, the Sadducees are going to attack Jesus on the religious front and ask a religious question. Do you want to know what question it's about? About the resurrection. About what happens after death. Maybe you were thinking about that this morning. Maybe you weren't. But now we're all going to think about it for a little while. In a question that the Sadducees ask about resurrection. So if you have your Bibles, let's go back to where we left off last week in Luke chapter 20. And we'll pick it up in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees. Those who deny that there is a resurrection. So the first thing you have to know about Sadducees is that they actually have a theological belief that there is no resurrection. That's different than the Pharisees and the scribes. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to the age... And to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed 
in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now if now he is not God of the dead, but of the living for all. Live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. So they asked Jesus this question about resurrection, paint this weird story about marriage, and then Jesus rebukes them and corrects them and teaches them another understanding of resurrection. What is going on? It's brilliant. And it's really fun. Because all of us, I think, in this room, and I think all human beings, have this sense that we are, we are made for eternity. That this life can't be all that there is. If you look at popular media, books, movies, there's this sense that there's life after life to some degree. And there's all these different world religions that speak about life after life, and they don't all agree. In fact, when, when I would attend a funeral of, a, of an atheist or even an agnostic or a humanist who doesn't really believe in everlasting life, they still speak about things eternal. They think about how their legacy will live on. They talk about how they hope that their impact will impact generations or that their memory will live in the hearts of their children or their spouse. And so their idea of eternity, something that lasts beyond them, is history. And so history becomes the place in which they are remembered beyond their time and space of the earth. And I think this is true of all humanity because the Bible teaches that God, this is Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning or the end. God is eternal and he has pressed in humanity a desire for eternity. And when Jesus teaches what he does in this episode, we're going to see that Jesus teaches three things about resurrection, about eternal life. The first thing is this, that resurrection is certain. It's going to happen. We'll look at that. And that resurrection is in Christ. If you want resurrection, it's found in Christ. And knowing about resurrection changes how we live. It changes everything about how we operate in the world today. And so the Sadducees come to him and say, okay, we're going to ask you a question about resurrection because we don't believe that there's any resurrection. We don't think that people resurrect from the dead. And the reason they don't believe this is because the Sadducees adhered to the, to the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Pentateuch. Pentateuch being five. This is the books of the law. And they didn't see that there was anything mentioned of resurrection in the very first five books of the Bible. Now, there's plenty in the Old Testament that talks about resurrection from the dead. Now, here's a quick survey of, of some of those examples, starting in the book of Job. Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, like my body will resurrect, I shall see God. Psalm 73, the psalmist says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. Daniel says this, and many of those who sleep in the dust, who have died and been buried on the earth, shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to the shame of everlasting contempt. So there's resurrection for those into life and resurrection into suffering. Isaiah the prophet says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. For who 
Dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. So there's plenty in the Old Testament. This is just a quick snapshot. But for the Sadducees, they really only honored the first five books of the Bible. And look at the first five books of the Bible. They said, you can't see any mention in the law of a resurrection. This was their understanding. And so what they would love to do is have these debates with Pharisees and scribes. And they'd have different arguments about why there can't be resurrection. And one of their favorite arguments, like the I got you argument, is this about marriage. And they pick this up from the law in the first five books. One's called Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy chapter 25, where in the law, there makes a prescription to safeguard family members whose husbands die and don't leave any children, offspring. Because the family's inheritance, all their possessions, all of, all of their power is given through the offspring, their children. And if you don't have any children, then your, your family's you know, estate goes to somebody else. And so to safeguard that for a widow, there was this prescription, Deuteronomy 25. If brothers dwell together, means families live together, and one of them dies and has no son... The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now, as moderns, we look at that and go, that's crazy. <laughs> but you think about all the ways in which our modern medicines would allow us to have offspring to keep the generations alive. And they might think, we're crazy. So you don't have to think about how crazy they are, how crazy we are. Just know that there's, the prescription is this, to care for this woman and to make sure that she doesn't lose her possessions so that it can continue in the family. So for protection, this is what's prescribed so that she can have children. This is the story of Ruth. Remember the story of Ruth? So there's a woman named Naomi. She has a husband and two sons. Her sons marry two women, one Ruth. And then Naomi's husband and two sons die. And so now Ruth and her sister-in-law are kind of caught, like, what do we do? Her sister-in-law stays with her family, and Ruth returns with Naomi and says, Naomi, you'll be my mother. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And Naomi's like, no, I don't have any more sons to give you. Or if I were to get remarried and have a son, how old would you be for him to marry you and give you offspring? Don't follow me. And Ruth says, I'm, I'm going to follow you. I just trust you. I love you. And so she follows Ruth back to her home country in Israel. And that's where she meets Boaz. Remember the story of Boaz? And Boaz is the kingsman redeemer. So that Naomi and Ruth, their possessions and property, their power, doesn't leave the family. And so she has a child with Boaz. And their estate stays within the family. That's the whole story. And so what the Sadducees love to do is go back to Deuteronomy 25 and say, oh, we have created a problem that no one can figure out, which thus disproves the resurrection. And so this is the story they create. There's a man who has a wife. He dies. And then she marries her, his brother. They have no kids, and he dies. And then the third brother marries this woman, and he dies. And you're kind of listening to the story like, why do we keep marrying this woman, you know? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> and then eventually she dies. We're all like, oh my gosh, Lord have mercy. Finally, she like is dead and she doesn't have to do this anymore. They have this weird story to try to debunk the belief in resurrection. 
Now, people do this all the time. My first interaction with people who do these sorts of things was probably when I was like 10 or 11. My parents were first-generation believers trying to figure out how to, how to have a family oriented toward, towards the faith. And so we had all these answers in our, in our house of like, you know, God's all-powerful. God can do anything. And so I, I grew up thinking, you know, God was all-powerful. He could do everything. And one of my neighbors, uh, I was babysitting or doing something for them. And he said, you know, I heard that your family's a, a family of faith. He says, yeah. And he goes, do you think that God's all-powerful? And I was like, oh, yeah, I know the answer to this one, right? Yeah, God's all-powerful. And he asked this question. Is there anything that God can't do? And I said, no, God can do anything. He's all-powerful. Oh, can God make a rock so big that he himself can't lift? And I was like, whoa. <laughs> you know, my 10-year-old brain, wow, that's crazy. Because if he can create a rock so big he can't lift, and he can't lift the rock. There's something he can't do. He's not all-powerful. But if he can't make the rock so big that he can't lift it, well, then he can't make a rock that big, and he's not all-powerful. Whoa, my whole faith just fell apart. And it was like, well, God's not real, you know. These are the kinds of questions that, that antagonists love to ask. They think they're so smart. You know, if you're in high school, going to college, this is what f a freshman professors love to do. They're like, oh, fresh meat Christians. I love it. They're going to ask questions like this. Like, is God all-powerful? Can he make red to turn to blue or blue turn to green and you're like no and then you start thinking about it and realize that that's a stupid question actually that it's not helpful to try to trap god in linguistic issues and then you learn actually omnipotent and all-powerful omniscient and all these things doesn't mean that he can't do some things in fact there's a lot of things that god can't do god can't lie god can't abuse you god can't act in evil god can't change right God is love, so he can't act unloving towards us. And so that's not tied up in him being all-powerful. But these are sorts of the questions that people love to ask to try to shatter your faith. And so the Sadducees are no different. They, they, found, they found something in the law that says, oh, this is what happens upon death with marriages. What if, what if she had to marry seven people? And then you get to heaven. You think there's resurrection? Come on. No one believes in resurrection. They're like the first moderns. No one believes in resurrection. In fact, here's the problem. Whose husband or whose wife will she be to these husbands? And they think they've got Jesus. You got to think about this. This is the Sadducees' best attempt. This is their one shot at destroying Jesus. And they come at Jesus with this question, which means this question has worked for them many times before with Pharisees or scribes or the average Jew. And they think they've got him. If God's so powerful, can he create a rock so big he can't lift? Ha! And Jesus goes, you don't get it, do you? You don't get anything. And so he talks about marriage. First and foremost, he says, okay, let's look at this. After resurrection, you're not given in marriage. Marriage doesn't exist in heaven. They're like the angels, he says. Not that they become angels, but they're like in the state of Angels were all created at one point. Now, th this is an, a fascinating thing. God has such a great imagination. He's creative. He created all the angels at once. They don't marry. They don't procreate. They were all made once in his presence to visibly see him. And they were going to choose whether to stay with God or not. And he does the exact opposite with humanity. He creates humanity and brings them in generations. So he doesn't create humanity all at once. He creates them male and female, and they bring in the generations. And the, and the mechanism, the institution in which God gives humanity to bring in offspring is marriage. 
And so after a resurrection, men and women are no longer married because there's no longer need to bring in generations and offspring. They're like angels in the sense. They don't become angelic, but they're like angels in the sense that there's no longer a need for procreation. Now, this flies in the face of, of many religious beliefs. You ever heard someone say, all religions basically teach the same thing? You ever heard someone say it like that? Yeah, they haven't like opened a religious book ever, maybe. Like it takes about 30 seconds in some religious theology to understand we don't all believe the same thing. And you think about Mormons specifically who would say that they're Christians. They have a very different belief about who Jesus is and especially about resurrection and marriage and resurrection. Mormons would say, well, marriage done here in the temple is eternal marriage. And you'll be eternally married so you can have eternal offspring and populate other planets. Well, Jesus directly teaches against that here. Muslims would say, well, a reward is like 72 virgins for devout Muslim men so that you can have offspring. Again, Jesus would teach something different than that here. So no, not all religions believe the same thing or teach the same thing about resurrection. In fact, Jesus is correcting a false belief amongst the Sadducees about resurrection, that there's not marriage in resurrection. I remember one time we were doing big questions of the faith and someone asked me, will there be marriage in, in the resurrection? And I thought, why are you asking? Are you asking because you're coming to me saying, surely this marriage has to end at some point, right? <laughs> or are you asking because you're like, I just can't imagine heaven without her, without him. Well, the reality is, it's not worse not to be married in heaven. What God has is infinitely better. And so your relationship with your spouse will be infinitely better. And then your relationship with other people will be infinitely better. There's something altogether new that God has for us. But here Jesus first debunks the Sadducees saying, okay, your whole premise is wrong. Marriage is an institution of this age so that I can bring in the generations. Because I'm doing that with humanity, which is distinct from the angels. But in the age to come, there won't be a need for procreation. There's not new babies being born. And so there's no longer a need for marriage. Does that make sense? So then he goes and says, but here's, here's the reality, is that there's actually resurrection taught in the first five books of the Bible. You think there's no resurrection mentioned in the books of the law. In fact, there is. Let's go to an episode in Exodus where Moses was talking to God in this burning bush episode. And what does Moses call God? He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And if God is the God of these men and women who have passed, that means they're living. He's the God of the living, not the dead. So he points out the language in which is used in the first five books of Deuteronomy, or first five books of the Bible, particularly Deuteronomy. We use the same language. My wife, Kristen, she's sitting over here. Such a distraction in the front row. Man. Mm. If you were to ask Kristen, is Thomas your husband? And she says, Thomas was my husband. What would that mean about me? That I'm dead. I've passed. If she says, Thomas is my husband, that means that I'm alive. And she's saying, look at, the, look at how Moses talks to God. God of Abraham, God of Jacob, God of Isaac. All these people you think have died, 
but they're living with him. It's God of the living, not God of the dead. It's not God who was the God of Abraham. God who was the God of Isaac and Jacob. No, it's God who is the God of Abraham, which means they're living. It says that God is the God of the living, as Jesus says, not the God of the dead. And so the very first thing that we have to understand in Jesus' teaching is that resurrection is going to happen. It's certain. This is how he's made us. He's impressed eternity into our hearts. And as Daniel said, some raised to life and joy and pleasure forevermore, and some are raised to judgment. So how is it that you have eternal life? How is it that we are resurrected? Well, that's a good question because here in Luke chapter 20, he says to him in verse 35, but to those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry are given. There are some that are worthy. How are you worthy? Is that resurrection is in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is going to the cross for. He's going to be buried, and then on the third day, he's going to raise to new life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. This is what he tells Mary and Martha. This is John chapter 11. He says to Martha, or sorry, Martha said to him, I know that this is her brother Lazarus. He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am that resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, it's not life after death. It's eternal life, meaning we're living life now. And death is simply just a doorway for the continuation of life. Then Jesus Christ is procuring this for all those who would believe him at Easter. See, we're talking about what is it that Jesus does at Easter. We know that he dies and he raises from new life. But the last few weeks we've been looking at what does that accomplish for us? We've seen that Jesus Christ accomplishes the forgiveness of sins. That he washes away your guilt and your shame and frees you from any condemnation. So no one can bring a charge up against you. We saw that he's going to procure peace. This idea of shalom, that you would be repaired in your wholeness, in your relationship with God, relationship with other people, relationship with yourself and with creation. He's going to bring shalom, peace, wholeness, repair through his work at Easter. We saw last week that he's going to bring a repair to our humanity. He's going to restore us being human. It's not just restoring and saving our soul, but our bodies as well. And here in the resurrection, he's going to give us new bodies. It's not this, when we think of resurrection, it's not this disembodied spiritual existence. It is fleshly, a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. And so his resurrection is what Paul calls in a second the first fruits. I mean, he's the first one to raise from the grave so that all those who believe in him would be his brothers and sisters. This is the reality of Easter that death is not the end of the story. That there's resurrection to come, and those in Christ receive resurrection into eternal, unending life. That's the story of Easter that we long for. That Jesus Christ goes to the grave and through the grave for us. I love this. That Jesus comes and lives a life that we can't live and dies the death that we deserve to die. But he doesn't tell us, like, okay, now, when you go to die, don't worry. Somehow you're going to make it through this abyss. No, Jesus says, I'll go first. As your brother, 
I'll go first to the grave. And then I'll resurrect first so that all who hope in me will do the same. This is, how Jesus, this is what Jesus means when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And everything is wrapped up in this. Paul knows this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. After talking about the hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses that have seen the living Jesus, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now that's not a great argument for us because we didn't see him. But for those that Paul is writing to, they saw, many of them saw the resurrected Christ. And so he's saying, you saw Jesus, and if Jesus resurrected, then you can have resurrection. This is 1 Corinthians 15, later on 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, that's Adam, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam all dies, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So everyone who was born into humanity from the offspring of Adam, just raise your hand, that's all of us. You were born into death. But those who are born into Christ, who belong to Christ, you'll be born into life. Death in Adam, life in Christ. Do you belong to Jesus Christ? That's the question. So resurrection, Jesus teaches, is certain. Resurrection, if you want that into eternal life, is found in Christ. Now, knowing this is not just good theology to leave with, but it changes how we live. When we know that this is the certain reality of all those who are found in Christ, it fundamentally changes how we live and love this present age. In fact, I think it frees us up to live in this present age. The first thing that I would just mention, I'm going to mention three of them just really quick. First thing I would mention is from 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul says, you don't grieve as the world grieves with no hope. Now, you've been to a lot of funeral services. I have as well. There's, there's a real grief whenever we lose someone. Like there's just death and death is trauma to our soul. We're not built for, for death. And so every time we experience death, whether it's the death of a loved one, the death of a marriage, the death of, of a job, a career, the death of a, of a pet even, like it's trauma to the soul, is it not? Because we weren't made to live in a world with death. But he says, but you don't grieve as people who have no hope. Because you know about resurrection. Because you know where you're going. Then your grief is experienced without despair. It's with hope. So that's the first thing is we experience grief very differently than the world experiences it. Without hope. For we know what Christ has done. Which is wonderful gives you great hope. It changes the way in which we go through suffering. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8. I do not consider the present sufferings. Are you in suffering right now? Is life really hard right now? Paul says, I don't consider the present sufferings worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. In the age to come, that our present sufferings is the worst it will ever be. For you know the age to come. You will be restored, repaired, brought into eternal dwellings of great joy and pleasure forevermore. And he says it also changes the way in which we, we hold our possessions. And actually, I think it frees us up to actually enjoy our possessions. 
Because when we think this is, the, this is the only life that we have, this is, the only, this is the only time that we get to enjoy these things, what does that do for us with our possessions? Doesn't it keep us guarding them? It's like you have a really nice car, maybe you've restored it, or you have really nice possessions like china that your grandmother gave you. What do you do with those things? You put them in a cabinet and no one touches them. So they, they wouldn't break, wouldn't get a scratch on it. They wouldn't be hurt or damaged because this is all the time we have. But when you realize, as Paul says, I consider everything a loss. I consider everything a loss. For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, which is eternal life, knowing the Father, knowing the Son, knowing Christ, then you're free to actually enjoy these things. And your life is not ruined when they get scratches and they break. For you know that they are temporal. I'm telling you, knowing the reality of resurrection, what Jesus Christ has done. It changes everything of how we live. See, we as Christians should enjoy the world better than anyone else. For we know that we have been set from it, and we know where we are going. It's a beautiful picture. And so, I don't know if anyone who came in this room with a picture of heaven as this like disembodied, spiritual, cloud experience in which you have no appetite for. And I would tell you, just open up the scriptures and let Jesus, let the word of God begin to fill your biblical imagination of what he has planned for you. There's a couple things. Just think about Luke chapter 14 where we were. He says, you want to think about eternal life with the kingdom's like? I want you to think of a huge banquet with food and drink and music and dance. That's like heaven. Think about John 14. He says, I go to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. Heaven is like a home. A home that you long to be in. The greatest verbo ever. And I'm going to prepare a place that you can have and possess. That you can feel that will truly be home for you. I go to prepare a place in my Father's house for you. Think of Revelation 21. When I saw the new heavens and the earth, a new city came to the earth. New Jerusalem, there's a city, which means there's creativity, and there's life, and there's industry, and there's beauty, and there's relationship with people. These are the pictures of resurrection that the Bible gives us. And so we should just throw in the garbage some disembodied spiritual existence bouncing on clouds somewhere. Is that God restores heaven and earth, and that we dwell with God in the new earth. And so everything you love about the world is now repaired in relationship at that celebration in these cities, in homes and dwellings, in relationship with God and with others. It's incredible. And Jesus says, I go to the cross to die the death that we all deserve so that you all may be forgiven. That my sins would be forgiven. The thing that keeps me from him would be forgiven. And that I would be resurrected bodily, visibly, as Jesus Christ was resurrected. Bodily, visibly, in new bodies to enjoy forever. Here's one last text I want to give you. Just to put in your biblical imagination. I think it's so good. Just to think about God's love for you. It's just amazing. This is Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 4 through 7 says, But God, 
This is him towards you. Like, what does God think about you? What does God want to do for you? This is it. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you see this? That he made us alive. He raised us up. That would be the objects of his immeasurable graces. And all of that is found, you see it? With Christ. With him. With him. In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. All of this is being found in Christ. This is a picture. I don't know if we, we get it right away. That God made you. God has saved you. And he will keep you alive forever. Do you know why? So that he can pour out his immeasurable grace on you. Just think about that for a second. He has immeasurable, means like infinite, eternal. He has infinite, eternal gifts and delights and joys that he wants to share with you. In order to share all of them with you, he has to keep you alive forever so that he can keep showing you all the infinite things he has for you. Think about that for a second. God who made you, saved you, will sustain you forever so that he can keep showing you his graces. What an amazing God. What an amazing God. How can we do anything but worship him and love him? I hope you know today that God loves you so much that he would not only make you, but save you and will resurrect you into the age to come so that he can show you his immeasurable grace. That's all found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I'm, I am just blown away by the amount of love you have for your people, for me, who's so undeserving. Father, I pray that you would take the words today from your, from your word and you would comfort the hearts of your people. Those who need comfort, who have lost loved ones. Father, would you comfort those who death seems to be on their mind that it will not be the final story. Father, would you comfort those who are sick? Would you comfort those who are discouraged? Would you comfort those who are suffering with the realities of what you have accomplished and what you will do for them. And so, Lord, let us praise your name because you are worthy of it. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we give thanks. Amen.